0: Okay, so tonight we're going to big do a big jump. And the big jump that we're going to do is um, uh, we're going to get through all the laws of Exodus. Not really, but I want to show some patterns <laughs> that are taking place of some of the laws that were handed on top of Mount Sinai. So two weeks ago, we kind of finished off Uh, right before we got to chapter 19. So if you have a Bible tonight, that's where I want to begin. We're going to begin on the top of Mount Sinai, but uh, you're going to see here uh, when they arrive at Mount Sinai that the next four chapters here, chapters 20 through 24, is uh, a variety of different laws that's given to this up-and-coming new nation. And then you'll see at the Uh, end of the book, there's a lot of instructions about the building of the tabernacle. So we spent a lot of time in part one, in chapters one through 15. Um, We're going to take just tonight and a couple of more times in this study to finish the rest of the book. And the reason being is the, the law code that we see in this section of Exodus has a lot of sundry laws that Um, are quite difficult to get our hands around. But what I want to do tonight is I want to give to you some big pictures of how to think about them. So what we're going to do as we get to Mount Sinai tonight is uh, we are reminded that as they arrive at this place, whatever place it is, this is on last week's handout, there's different theories on Sinai's location we've mentioned that a couple of different times in this study the Arabian location a northern Sinai because it seems as though uh, for it to be an 11-day journey on foot from where they were to Kadesh Barnea to go into the land where the spies go out to spy out the land uh, kind of indicates maybe a, a, a northern location but traditionally it has been the southern location that um, was substantiated uh, as far back as the fourth century uh, through a pilgrimage journal of a woman named Ageria. Uh, um, so make that what you will. Uh, we're not quite sure of the location. However, what we do know is when we when they get there, if you look at chapter 19 verse 1, it says here that they <clears throat> th- uh, three months to the day, uh, after they left Egypt, uh, they come to the desert of Sinai. Verse one says this. And it's interesting that it puts in parentheses here on the very day. I don't know why that's important, but uh, the author wanted us to know it took, uh, it took them three months to get to this location. And uh, there they are going to camp. And as they camp, Moses is going to receive the revelation of God's law several different times as he goes up on top of the mountain. What's interesting to me is the purpose of it. If you come to verse 3, it says, Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, that out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So the end goal of this is their service to the rest of the world by being a kingdom of priests and a holy nation that sets an example to the surrounding uh, communities what's interesting as you read this chapter chapter 19 is that only moses is to go up um, a little bit later in the chapter uh, we're told that um, <clears throat> whoever touches the mountain if they get that close verse 12 shall surely be put to death and then in verse 22 uh, it says even the priests who approach the lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. So there's definite barriers that have put in place uh, that only allows Moses to be the intercessor for this new nation. So, excuse me, um, this is a part of a theme, and this is the last slide from last week's handout there's some debate as to how many times Moses ascended Mount Sinai. And according to this outline here, um, he ascended the mountain as much as eight times. So this, um, this kind of shows that he obviously, uh, by the end of this period was in much better shape than what he was, than when he began, uh, as he climbs the mountain and, um, it begins here in chapter 19 there's a second ascent in verse 8 of uh, 19 a third one in verse 10 and on and on it goes there so um this theme is interesting it 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 reveals that not everything was revealed to moses at one point in time it seems to take time he ascends and descends several times from mount sinai to receive this revelation. All of this is for this intent. Um, The nation of Israel is to be a nation of servants and in their service to Yahweh, the end goal is uh, to show the rest of the nations what a a godly and righteous nation looks like. Uh, The nation of Israel is to be a priestly nation which means they're to help the other nations out, which I find interesting that it's not too long into the Old Testament that you find as they enter Canaan, uh, they're going to wipe out their potential enemies rather than uh, being an intercessor and educator uh, of them. But uh, nonetheless, this is what they're to do. They're to serve God in this capacity now in order to do that obviously they need to learn how to conduct themselves and that's why all these laws are given at this point I think most of us are familiar with the 10 commandments uh, Mm -hmm. that begin in chapter 20 but that's only a uh, concise version of the overall revelation of the laws that are given there The rest of the book, as I mentioned before, is about the construction of the tabernacle, which uh, is down to the very details of the type of materials that are to be used in the building of this portable sanctuary. Um, It seems as though um, what these laws are serving is a direct contrast to the Canaanites. When we anticipate the removal of the Canaanites from the land, their worship and the gods that they worship, was detestable to uh, to the eyes of the God of Israel, and so these laws become very tedious, um, and they get down to the nitty gritty of what a day to day type of outlook of these people is to do uh, to look like. So if you come down in Um, chapter 20 down to verse 22, it says here, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites this, You have seen for yourselves that I have spoken to you from heaven. Do not make any gods to be alongside me. Do not make for yourself gods of silver or gods of gold, which would be the natural default position, is the worship of many gods. And you'll remember this will be the struggle of the nation of Israel, uh, for much of their history in the Old Testament. They continue to want to not only worship Yahweh, but they want to worship other gods as well. So, what you find taking place here is all of these laws are going to help set them apart. In chapter 20, you have the what is called the Decalogue, but before we touch that, what I want you to be aware of is if you find this part of the bible tedious uh you're not alone um this is a very slow methodical um setting forth of guidelines here and uh it's important to understand that you can't get through it quickly if you're going to contemplate not only the law that is given to the Israelites, but what relevance it has to us who live all these centuries later. So the way I put it is reading through the laws that are given at Sinai is sort of like trying to swim through peanut butter. It's slow, it's sticky, uh, but if you can keep at the back of your mind that God has a goal in mind, and keep in mind that it's to be a holy nation and a priestly nation. These laws are somehow to assist them on that journey. And the other thing I think is important to keep in mind in all these laws that are given is that they are embedded culturally, too. Um, This is not something new to uh, the world at the time. Laws and codes had been in existence even before the Israelites, and it seems as though law codes uh, of other civilizations that have been unearthed by archaeology help us to see both similarities and differences with the laws given in Exodus, Leviticus, uh, and Deuteronomy. So there's one that you probably have heard of. Have you ever heard of Hammurabi's code at all? Um Hammurabi is a king of Babylon and you're going to see right here if you can read that on the slide uh, he was king of this area over what became known as Babylon from 2285 to 2242 BC so I mean this goes back thousands of years but this little steel it's called a steel here was discovered in 1902 by some French explorers uh, in the city of Susa. And it predates um, the laws that are given in Exodus by many years. And this is what it looks like, this writing on this steel here, looks sort of like um, the, I guess you would say it's close to hieroglyphics uh, type of writing. Uh, But what's important is the similarity. So This steel here has about 300 laws. And when it's compared to Exodus, chapter 21, verses 23 through through 27, they overlap. And many of the laws are very similar. So what's interesting is this um, is something that is a mixture of things that were already known plus new revelation that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. Does that make sense to everybody? There's some things everybody knew culturally. Those things are written down. There are some things that are new that are given to this chosen nation that we call Israel. Any questions or thoughts on any of that? <clears throat> the other thing to keep in mind here is as you read through this section, is this is a form of an ancient treaty. So if you come back to chapter 19, uh, one of the things that Moses is doing is he's bringing the law down to the people. And if you look back in chapter 19, verse 7, it says, Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. This is what is often called the Mosaic Covenant. It is something that um, was given through Moses, but the people are entering into what, technically is known as the suzerain vassal treaty so again in ancient times there would be covenants that were made by one who had greater power like uh like a king with their vassals and the promise basically was twofold if these vassals would be obedient to the king he would promise protection over them and when you take the book of deuteronomy and you align it with some of the suzerain vassal treaties of other civilizations they they follow a very similar format there's a prologue there is a statement of what the king has done for the people and then there is this if you will obey me i will bless you if you disobey me there will be curses or there will be consequences And much of the book of Deuteronomy follows that same pattern. Uh, This treaty here that is entered into at Mount Sinai becomes the basis for the blessings of God and the obligations of the people. So if if you keep your thumb here in Exodus, go over to Deuteronomy chapter 27 just for a quick second because I want you to see that... This when the law is given a second time, that's what Deuteronomy means. Uh deutero second namas mean law. Um you'll notice that what by the time you get to uh the end of the book of Deuteronomy, in chapter 26, verse 16, it says, The Lord your God commands you this day to follow these decrees and laws, carefully observe them with all your heart. And with all your soul, you have declared this day that the Lord is your God, and you will walk in his ways, and that you will keep his decrees, commands, and laws, and that you will obey him. And the Lord has declared this day that you are his people, his treasured possession, as he promised, and that you are to keep all his commands. He has declared that he will set you in praise, fame, and honor high above the nations he has made, that you will be a people holy, there's that theme again, to the Lord your God as he promised. So that is a, a repetition of what occurred on Mount Sinai, given a second time in Deuteronomy. But in Deuteronomy chapter 27, he lays out both the curses and the blessings. So You'll notice verse one, it says, Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, keep all these commands that I will give you today. And when you've crossed the Jordan into the land your God is giving you, set up some large stones and coat them with plaster, and then write on them the words of this law that you are you have crossed over to enter the land the Lord your God has given you And then it, it's listed here. So notice if you come on down to verse 15. Um or verse 14, the Levite shall recite to all the people of Israel in a loud voice, Cursed is the man who carves an image or casts an idol. So if you look and let your eyes skim down the page, it says Cursed, Cursed is the man, Cursed is the man, Cursed is the man, Cursed is the man. And it lists all these things. Then when you get to chapter 28, it says, if you will fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, the Lord will set you high above the nations of the earth. And then there's the blessings uh, that um, God is going to give. Uh, verse three, you will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country and the fruit of your womb will be blessed and the crops of your lands and the, your livestock and your herds and lambs and so on and so forth. As you read through this, There's blessing after blessing that is reiterated. And so what you have then is this choice uh, that is given to the people. Do you want to enter into the suzerain vassal treaty with God or not? And what, going back to Exodus, um, that the people, after Moses comes down with the 10 words that we call the commandments, um, they enter into it and they agree that they will keep these laws. So <laughs> the book of Deuteronomy in its entirety follows the pattern of the of, of vassal treaties that are common to the, its day. What's interesting is the 10 words that are given in chapter 20 of Exodus is a concise uh, version of the core of this covenant. And, uh, and then it gets tedious because... The rest of Exodus or the next section of Exodus, all of Leviticus, some of numbers and all of Deuteronomy is law after law uh, that is given. And it is given in very precise ways to a very precise culture of that day. So before I go on, do you have any thoughts or questions that you have? Okay. Okay. Now, what's important, I think, is sometimes people get confused about the purpose of the law, and there's this misconception that the law was given so that the Israelites could could earn their, using a much later term, their salvation, That's a misconception. We already saw uh, in chapter 19 that he's already brought them out. He's already made uh, them his treasured possession. The purpose of the law has a very uh, specific purpose. The Ten Commandments, for as much as we like to post them as timeless absolutes, are given not in a vacuum. They're given in a very precise situation. And all of them are good commandments. In fact, if all the Ten Commandments were obeyed every day, you will see the mass shootings that you're seeing on the news. Um, what you'll find, though, is that this is a part of a bigger thing. And when you look at what this law is to do, it's not to earn God's favor. Rather, it is to train people in the ways of becoming a more godly like uh, group of people. And the laws are also kind of woven into a bigger story. So the nation of Israel begins with a nuclear family, Abraham and Sarah and the promises that are given to that specific family. But it grows from there, and it will stretch on into the monarchy under David and Solomon. So what we find is this law is to help them to live into the reality of being a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And that is very specific to a time and a place, and um, especially when you get into the food laws and stuff, we scratch our head, we don't understand, doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us why we can't eat shellfish or whatever. Um, In that day and age, it meant something. And you have to be careful about saying that these are all timeless absolutes. Rather, This is the wisdom of that day uh, in the culture of that day on how they're going to be a different kind of people than the rest of the surrounding nations. Does that make sense to everybody? In fact, it's interesting when you fast forward all the way to the New, New Testament, Jesus basically sums it up and says all the law rests on these two commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, all these specifics helped them to do that in that day. We need to keep understanding how we can do that in our day. Any thoughts, comments? Well, Larry, I think some of the food laws were also to keep them safe. Because, Absolutely. you know, if you ate raw pork, well, not raw, but undercooked pork, you'd be in big trouble. Yeah. And the same with some of the shellfish, there's only certain times, some of the crabs you can only eat them certain times of the year or within certain number of hours after you take them out of the water. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think a lot of those things are very specific to a day and age that did not have freezers and refrigeration and, uh, and stoves and ovens. Um, and so I think one of the things that we keep in mind is God is looking out for the safety uh, of his people, not just against their enemies, but even in their health as well. Mm -hmm. Good. Anybody else? Okay. So let's come back to the Decalogue for a second. Chapter 20. So you have these 10 words that are given. Now we call them commandments because There is um, a very specific you shall not element to it. However, Mm -hmm. in the original Hebrew, and it's reflected in uh, verse one here, and God spoke all these words. That's the better translation. So there's 10 words that are given. uh, And what's interesting is these 10 words... Are repeated in Deuteronomy chapter five, verses five through twenty-one. <laughs> What's really interesting is these ten commandments are not identical in these two passages of scripture. It's it's no, most notable in the keeping of the Sabbath. So look at verse eleven here in chapter twenty. It says here. Um, Remember, or actually verse 8, going down through verse 11. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your um, manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day, therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So in Exodus, the reason for keeping the Sabbath is because God rested in the creation week, this pattern of six and one, uh, work six and rest one. But if you go over to Deuteronomy chapter five, you have these 10 words that are given, and these 10 words are essentially the same as in exodus however if you come down to verse 15 uh or again i i didn't put the full paragraph there go down to verse 12 through 15 uh it says here in deuteronomy 5 observe the sabbath day by keeping it holy as the lord your god has commanded you six days you shall labor and do all your work but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it, you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son, your daughter, your manservant, maidservant, your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor the alien within your gates, so that your manservant and maidservant may rest as you do. Now, notice the difference. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. No mention about the creation day. No mention about the fact that God rested. So same commandment, but a different reason. Why? Well, these are two different traditions. And these traditions reflect the need of their day. And this particular one in Deuteronomy is reflecting upon the fact that there is a sense of obligation. God gave these words or commandments and he was the great deliverer out of Egypt. Therefore, you need to continue to keep these commandments. The first time it's given is because you're following the pattern of God who worked six days and rested on the seventh seventh day. So the difference in my opinion is Deuteronomy is anchored in a later era And um, the book of Deuteronomy is given to a new generation. So remember, we're skipping over the book of Numbers, but the generation that turned around and wanted to go back to Egypt but wandered in the wilderness for 40 years died out in the wilderness. These are their kids and grandkids that are going to go into the land of Canaan. So when this law is given a second time, it's been updated. It's been updated in this commandment as a reason for why they should keep the Sabbath. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay. So <clears throat> let's look back at chapter 20 for a second. Let's look at a couple of these commandments. The first part is kind of vertical in nature. It's kind of about their relationship with God. Have no other gods before me. Don't make an idol. Don't misuse the name of the Lord. And remember the Sabbath day. Then, beginning of verse 12, down through 17, that's more horizontal in nature. It's all about how people are relating to other people. Honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't give false testimony. Uh, Don't covet your neighbor's house and so forth. Now, That's all wonderful, but when you look at it, without other laws that are coming later, how do you even keep these commandments? They're pretty ambiguous, at least some of them are. So how do you honor your father and mother? What are you to do? Um, You know, in our day and age, I just gave you an example of some decisions that need to be made about my mother. How do we continue to honor her even in making some tough decisions? Mm -hmm. Um, What does it mean to rest on the Sabbath day? There's not a lot of detail given here. Um, You shall not do any work. But what about recreation? Um, Then it ties into not my generation, but uh, my parents' and grandparents' generation when um, on Sunday stores were closed. Is that mm-hmm. tied is that tied into this? Is that really a way of obeying this commandment to honor the Sabbath? So you can see what I'm saying. It's it's a little bit muddy here. Um how, how are you to obey these uh words? Um yeah, you're not to murder, but what about killing? What if somebody breaks into your house and is threatening the life of your children? Um in self-defense. Uh, are you allowed to take a life? Well, that'll get very tedious in in Leviticus and uh, Deuteronomy about what is justifiable, what's not justifiable, and that type of thing. So all I'm saying is a lot of debate and wisdom is necessary if you're actually going to obey the laws that are given here, because they're kind of ambiguous, and I think they knew more than we do how these laws probably pertain to them and their cultural situation. Now, we here we are several thousand years later, how do we keep these same commandments? That takes a lot of discussion. That takes a lot of thought. That t- takes a lot of wisdom to figure out how some of these things pertain to us. And then you have to factor in the whole matter of grace as well. That's where you get into the book of Galatians in particular, um, that Christ obeyed the law and fulfilled the law and all that type of stuff. And now we live under grace. So um, it seems as though the last line of this slide is Jews were never enslaved to the letter of the law, but they had to kind of reimagine over the years how these laws uh, are going to pertain to them. That's where tradition starts to enter in to Judaism. In fact, most of the things that are reflected upon by the rabbis is a determination of how are these laws relevant? How are we to obey them? Well, you can have, just like in any religious order, you can have extremes to the right or to the left. And, you Uh know you you go to Israel and real orthodox conservative Jews, you know, they're trying to determine um, how, how much activity determines work. Um, mm-hmm. You know, how far can you walk? How much can you lift? That was uh, the big discussion that was going on in Jesus' day with the Pharisees as well. So <laughs> it's, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, a more for lack of a better term, progressive uh, group of Jewish people would say, why are you still worried about some of these things here? The intention is this. It's not the letter of the law. So you see how far back this goes. This isn't just a New Testament issue. It goes all the way back to the beginning of the nation of Israel and how they determined how they were going to do it. And I just gave you the example of the Sabbath between the version in Exodus and the version in Deuteronomy, uh, how it was reimagined for their day. So some thoughts there? So here's a question. What is at the heart of all these laws then? These laws are also called the Book of the Covenant. um, And it does lay out a variety of different things. I guess if you had to summarize all these laws here, it's somehow connected to the worship of the one true God is not to resemble the Canaanite practices of their gods. That's why um, worship of Baal, uh, worship of the Astra and that type of thing in the Old Testament is so strongly condemned. Um, and then you have the other question, um, these laws, how do they have the same weight in our day and age? Um, there's no Canaanites around. I mean, (laughs) so, you know, how does, how does this apply to us? Um, so they have an ancient context and it takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of creativity and it takes a lot of open-mindedness to see what the contemporary relevance of some of these laws are. Because you could get real rigid and legalistic with it and try to keep the letter of the law. And once you do, I think you've missed the point of the wisdom it's trying to create within a very early civilization. So... I'm not going through all these laws. I am going to give you two examples on my last slide, but here's what I want you to notice. When you read these laws, if you are so zealous to do that, they keep uh, going back and forth uh, in an alternate pattern. So it talks about some social laws about how you treat some, uh, some other person. And then there's something that's stuck into uh, uh, there about religious laws. So let me just give you one example of this. So you're in chapter 20. Go over to chapter 21 here for a moment, and as it goes all the way down through chapter 21 uh, into chapter 22, you'll see. I'm going to skip down to the uh, to verse um, chapter 22. <clears throat> look at verse uh, 16 it says if a man seduces a virgin who is not pledged to be married and sleeps with her he must pay the bride price and he shall be and she shall be his wife if her father absolutely refuses to give her to him he must still pay the bride price for virgins that all of a sudden bingo it switches from this virgin to religious things don't allow a sorceress to live anyone who has sexual relationships with the animal must be put to death whoever sacrifices to any god other than the lord must be destroyed then in verse 21 he goes back to the social side of it do not mistreat an alien or oppress him for you were aliens in egypt that's the pattern through this whole section of exodus social Religious, social, religious, social, religious. It alternates back and forth. Um, Could this resemble a couple of different traditions being kind of shuffled together? I don't know. But these laws seem to be a snapshot of fidelity to God and fidelity to neighbor. There's kind of an interrelationship in them. If you look at chapter 23 of Exodus and come down to verses 12 through 14, it says here, uh, six days to do your work, the seventh day do not work so that your ox, your donkey may rest and a slave born in your house and the alien as well may be refreshed. Be careful to do everything I have said to you. Do not invoke the name of other gods. Do not let them be heard on your lips. Isn't it fascinating that this isn't just about Um, human beings it mentions the ox it mentions the donkey it mentions the slave who in that day is not considered uh, fully human and the alien as well so you have (laughs) you have this interrelationship from the entire strata of society that these laws pertain to everything from human beings even to uh animals as well does that make sense mm-hmm. okay okay so here's where i want to end tonight okay i want to give you two examples uh, these laws each of them have their own voice in the sense that they have their own day they have their own time they have their own culture um, and what happens is over time some of these laws that are given in Exodus begin to conflict with other laws that are given in places like Deuteronomy and Leviticus. So I'm going to give you two examples. So uh, go back to chapter 21 of Exodus. And the first thing that's mentioned uh, following the prohibition against idols and altars is to talk about slaves, So in verse uh, 1 and following down to verse 11, it talks about how you're to treat your slave. So I'll read this. It says, if you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years. But in the seventh year, he shall go free without paying anything. If he comes alone, he is to uh, go free alone. But if he has a wife, when he comes, she is to go with him. So if he's already married or already has um, uh, a woman that's a part of his family, uh, she is to go with him when he's set free. Verse 4, if his master gives him a wife, so he comes into this uh, servant relationship with the master as a single individual, and he has a wife, and the master gives him a wife, and she bears him sons or daughters, The women and their children belong to the master. Only the man is to go free. He can't take his children with him. So that's an interesting thing. So that would be a way of keeping a guy indebted to you. That's what the next verse says. But if the servant declares, I love my master and my wife and my children, I don't want to go free. I don't want to be set free. I love my wife. I love my kids. I'll be your servant for life. So it was kind of a, a way of, Uh, maneuvering to get this guy to continue to be his servant, and uh, it says that it is noted by this interesting uh, procedure. It says, um, the master will take him before the judges, so the the council of the community, and he shall take him to the door or the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl. Then he will be his servant for life. So he'll have uh, a pierced ear, and that will be an indicator that um, he is a bondservant. That's a term that will come later in the Bible, one who chooses to continue to be a servant. Um, and then it goes on, if a man sells his daughter as a servant, okay, boy, oh, but that's bad. So here's a man, he's in debt to somebody, he can't get out of debt. So he sells his daughter off to somebody as a way of paying for his debt. She is not to go free as men's servants do. So this is pertaining primarily to men who can be set free. The women, there's a couple of options. If he brought the women into the the situation, they can go with him. But if not, they are to be left behind. So... It's interesting then, come on down to verse 10. I find this interesting. If he marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, and marital rights. So there is some alimony that's plugged into this that he is to continue to provide for her the things that are needed. So here's one set of laws, but it's primarily geared toward male Hebrew slaves that got in debt to a slave, uh, to a landowner and they became slaves and they were working off their debt. And there's these regulations on what they're allowed to do or not allowed to do. Now you fast forward, it's interesting in Leviticus, let me skip uh, this just for a second. Uh, Now the Israelites are commanded not to take Hebrew slaves. These are their own uh, um, siblings. So they're not to take Hebrew slaves at all in Leviticus. And then when you get to Deuteronomy, it's not just the male Hebrew slaves that are allowed to go free. Both male and female slaves are allowed to go free. So you see this progression taking place, even within the Torah itself, that you have males. This is what dear to do with male slaves, male and female slaves, and the uh, uh, it's foreboden uh, that that they take Hebrew slaves. Now, this non Hebrews is a different story. You can take non non Hebrew slaves. So there's one example that each law kind of has its own voice <clears throat> that resonates within the time that this is reflecting another example is in the book of exodus and deuteronomy this is regarding carcasses so let's say uh you're traveling and you know how we see a a dead deer alongside the road hit by a car what are you to do with that type of thing Well, in Exodus and Deuteronomy, there's a prohibition for all the Israelites. They're not to take that animal and use it for food. Not at all. However, in the book of Leviticus, dead carcasses are only forbidden to the priests, not to the overall population. So it's quite fascinating the differences between the laws That And you can look these verses up and cross-references yourself. But um, these two examples are two of many examples of how there's a flex to these laws, depending upon when they're written and to which um, circumstance they're uh, being applied to. So that's the last slide that I have for tonight. Um, and it covers this whole section, even though I've just drawn out a couple of examples. So um, let's see if you have any thoughts or questions. <clears throat> I'm coming about to an end of my own voice for tonight, but uh, do you have some thoughts or questions that you'd like to, uh, to raise as we close off our study tonight? Do we know if the people followed all these rules? Uh I don't know. I can't turn to a chapter and verse um to, to indicate that. But historically, but, I mean from, from, his, from historical records, maybe. Yeah. Um I don't know how to answer that off the top of my head. My gut feeling says I know human nature. And human nature suggests that they looked for ways to get around some of these laws, I would think. Um well, Samson didn't. <clears throat> what what do you mean? He he kept the laws, right? No, not Samson. No, it's, well, <laughs> I, you're, but his but the regulation. I was thinking about the regulation about the cut hair. That's not what you're refer for referring. No, to. I mean he they, he ate Delilah. the honey out of the lion and yeah, right. You know, and then even like that. even taking Delilah as his love interest. Yeah. <laughs> was outside the bounds. Now I was thinking about uh that Nazarite vow law that uh-huh. he kept that. Of course that would have been imposed upon him by his parents. Right. Uh, okay. But and he kept that law. But he certainly he certainly was an individual that was uh the Franks of his day, wasn't he? I mean, or some other um the Hugh Hefter of his day or whatever. Wow. Um, yeah, he had quite a wild life. He really did. Uh, no doubt about that. So that's a good example. Other, other questions or thoughts? Now, what you're going to find as you see how Jewish tradition recognizes the ambiguity of some of these laws and they will try to attach laws to laws so that by the time you get to the new testament people are they're being bent over under the burden of too many laws the pharisees had like 613 specific laws how do you even remember all of them let alone keep them uh so um but they they felt the pharisees that if they could be more specific about how these laws are to be kept then god would keep his covenant uh, to the people of israel and perhaps uh god would deliver them from the romans just like he had delivered them from the egyptians that's kind of the motivation of the pharisees with their their over religious uh, burden of extra laws but other other thoughts questions comments not well, that's where we'll stop I hope you guys have a wonderful Thanksgiving and thank uh, you you too yeah and uh I'll keep working on my voice before Sunday and uh, hope you feel better. better soon hope you feel and, better you know yeah. I sound worse than I feel that's are you having Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving? Uh, no we decided that uh, we didn't want to get other people sick, so what I ended up doing was um, the turkey I had I cooked today, and some other things we bought. I drove it down and dropped it off at my dad's, and mm-hmm. they're going to have uh, they're going to have Thanksgiving down there, and we're having kuhars tomorrow for oh. <laughs> Thanksgiving. <laughs> so. Sounds so, good. Yeah. so, all right. Well. Uh, have a great rest of the week and we'll see you soon, okay? Bye. 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 Bye-bye. Bye.